I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. John the Baptist is one of the most exciting, energetic figures of the Gospels. He of the camel hair, honey and locusts, preaching repentance, baptizing folks, making smooth the way of the coming Messiah. It's hard to imagine him then locked up in a dank prison, powerless. Hard to imagine that the one who had had the audacity to accuse the religious elite, you brood of vipers, hard to believe he's now stuck in prison because the wife of Herod demanded it as the price of criticizing Herod for marrying his sister-in-law, Herodias, since she is already married to his still very much alive brother. And now, now John the Baptist, who had done everything right as a prophet, as the forerunner of Jesus, as a servant of God, now John loses his head for what? Although Herod fears John, believes John to be a righteous and holy man, although Herod recognizes something of the truth in John and likes to listen to him, none of that saves John the Baptist. For in a few ill-considered minutes, Herod promises his stepdaughter whatever she wants as reward for her beguiling dance. Herodias sees her chance there and demands John's head, and though Herod grieves at the request, he complies out of, I don't know what, fear, pride, his reputation in front of his friends at the banquet. Because he cannot resist the voice of the world, the voice that punishes those who speak truth to power, the voice that demands one protects one's own privilege and power, no matter the cost to others. Because of all that, Herod ignores his own conscience and wantonly takes John's life. John loses his life, loses his head, for, as far as I can tell, nothing. We see here the petulance of power, all the old truths we know about the powerful. Power corrupts, power never capitulates, even in the face of truth, even in the face of love. We know this story. It's as old as Homer and Shakespeare. It's as new as the Game of Thrones and House of Cards. 
We see it throughout history, which is strewn with political leaders who trade their private conscience for political expediency, willing to do anything to secure their position, to shore up their pride, to avoid gossip and scandal, and unfortunately, it's a truism often repeated about our own Washington, D.C., that there are two forces at work there, fear and greed. We know this truth in the political realm too often and even in our own lives. For how often do we hear folks, ourselves even, espouse high-minded ideals that crumble when faced with having to give up power. This past year is littered with examples, of course. Every year is. I hardly need to provide them. The reaction of those with power, politicians, police administration, white people in general, most of whom are not consciously racist, who feel strongly that all ought to be treated equally. There, our reaction to the shocking level of police violence against black people is still too often one of defensiveness, of protecting ourselves, of finding ways to stay in power rather than listening to defending the truth. I saw this protection of power too while I was at general convention. Now mainly it was hearts and rainbows, but I was tracking the resolutions that called our Episcopal Church to divest its funds from fossil fuels. And I sat in every single hearing about those resolutions. This is a topic I know something about. I know that investor activism has not worked for the past 20 years with fossil fuel companies. I know there are ways to divest our portfolios without damaging them. And I know that though divestment is not the only answer, it's a pretty good one. It's a moral one. Just as divestment worldwide from South Africa was the huge wedge leading to the downfall of apartheid, so could divestment from fossil fuels undercut the power and legitimacy of those companies. It was disheartening, to say the least, to watch good people, kind people, many of whom I know, come to the hearings and argue against divesting. There were cogent arguments but I couldn't help but notice that the preponderance of folks who testified against divestment were from our foundations and organizations with very large endowments. No one argued that climate change isn't happening. No one tried to disprove the link between fossil fuels and climate change. No one tried to deny that we are on a climate catastrophe collision course. And yet there were so many reasons given not to act, not to divest. 
Herod believes John to be a righteous and holy man, he likes to listen to him. Yet he has him beheaded. Oh, these lessons about power and self-protection are as old as our oldest stories, yet they are as new today, which frankly is pretty depressing. In fact, when I saw the gospel for today, I thought, really? <laughs> the beheading of John the Baptist in the middle of summer? in the middle of Jesus's cool like healing stories and parables, suddenly the beheading of John? Yuck. I should have preached on the dancing of David naked before the Ark of the Covenant. But you can't hear this story and say nothing. Then I looked at where it was situated in the gospel. Right before this story of beheading is the story we heard last week. Jesus sending out his disciples two by two to preach good news, to heal without bag or bread or money, called to be completely vulnerable on the hospitality of strangers. And then immediately after the story, which we'll hear next week, the disciples return home excited at their success and then surrounded by excited followers, Jesus and the disciples provide a feast very different from Herod's birthday feast that ends in death. Rather, they feed the 5,000 in a banquet based on generosity, sharing, hope. So this terrifying story of beheading, of pointless death, of power betraying itself, of betraying the innocent in order to stay in power, it's sandwiched between sending out and gathering in. This gruesome feast stands in contrast to the joyful feast. This seemingly hopeless story where an innocent is betrayed by a Roman politician who is sympathetic yet unwilling to risk his neck for the truth, well, this story points to another official, Pilate, who will later find no reason to crucify Jesus, but acquiesces to the crowds anyway. You see, Mark is showing us two banquets, two kingdoms, the worldly kingdom where power justifies itself and the kingdom of God where we are to rely on love to be vulnerable. Mark shows us these kingdoms and basically he asks, which do you choose? Mark asks, which do you choose? But then he tells the truth. If you think the answer is obvious, I choose God's kingdom. And Mark says, yes, but sometimes the innocent, the truth teller, the righteous, those who seek to serve God will suffer. And sometimes it will seem 
pointless. The truth, Mark tells us, is that even in the face of the most powerful arguments, the most righteous calls for repentance, power will not willingly give up power. But you know what? We all have power of some kind, of various kinds, and we have a choice about how to wield it. We can act out of fear and greed. We can try to hold on for dear life to whatever power we have, or we can act out of the power of faith as Jesus sent his disciples out without bag or bread or money, we can choose to be vulnerable to the world, choose to give up power for the sake of truth and love and joy. And here's the really good news. You see, whatever we do, whatever we do, whether we have the courage to speak truth to power or whether we choose to use our power for joy and goodness or whether we use our power to maintain our power, there's another turn to this story. You see, just as John the Baptist pointed to the coming of the Messiah at the beginning of his ministry, at the end, his death foreshadows the execution of another innocent, Jesus. And that death, that death points to resurrection. That death points to hope, to the truth that life defeats death, that God is stronger in the end than all powers and all principalities. Yes, John's death is horrible, and it's violent. And I can only imagine what ran through his mind when the guards showed up at his cell that night. Did he think his death was worth it? Did he think it was pointless? I don't know. But I do know that it wasn't the end of the story. There are two kingdoms. We've got to choose. There are risks. But whatever we do, the kingdom is coming. <laughs>